I thank the Sarayu Trust to give this opportunity to meet many scholars and friends who wish to learn about India's cultural contribution to the world. In our history books, we all read about invasions, but we don't read about the 2000 years of glorious aspect of our history and culture when India was called Jagat Guru. Still, India is a cultural leader of the world, but unfortunately, we don't teach such things in the schools or colleges. And uh, we don't get inspiration from that, that India has such a grand persona. India is a distinct land. India is a distinct culture. India has given the world which no country could give. The philosophy of India, the literature of India, whatever India has given is immense. There are millions of documents scattered all over the world, but how many of us know about it? Many of the European scholars, many large number of Chinese, Japanese and Korean scholars, scholars in the Southeast Asian countries have been working on them. But unfortunately, this is not a subject in our universities. So I, it's uh, now what I'm going to talk about today is very basic, is very preliminary, you can say, that how India contributed towards development, uh, cultural and civilizational development of the world. The India, India is a land of rishis and munis, of gurus and acharyas who bequeath, who have bequeathed us uh, an immense, immense treasure of culture, huge number of Sanskrit texts written on various aspects, not only sacred, but also secular. The sciences, including science and technology, the, we were the best, we had the best grammarians in the world. We had the best authors in the world. We are, the, our rishis were the first to compile the Vedas, the, followed by, an, by a huge Vedic literature. Then we come to the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the, the, the great poets and dramatists, etc., like Kalidasa, Bhavabhuti, and so many. So, when we talk of philosophy, when we talk of uh, uh, all kinds of arts, all kinds of uh, arts means uh, uh, the performing arts as well as uh, the visual arts. So it's a huge area to study. So I'm going to uh, start with a few just very brief, giving you a very brief introduction about India's cultural contribution to the world. So on the top, what I'm, what I'm showing you, I'm starting with Om. There are a number of, large number of manuscripts that are discovered from all over Asia. They all start with Om, sometimes Om, Avidnamastu, Om, Swastiastu. There is Om. Om has been written by many countries in their own way because they have preserved the script, the way it reached them, the way the Acharyas took them. So they have still retained the same form and they have developed their own, uh, their own styles of writing Om from Mongolia. In Mongolia, it is written differently. In, in Tibet, in China, in Japan, in Southeast Asian countries, it's written all over differently. So here what you can see is Om, 
written by a Japanese calligrapher. This is the script that was taken in 8th, 9th century by the Indian Acharyas to East Asia, to China, and from there it went to Korea and Japan. On the other side, I have specially put a, uh, another calligraphy by a Japanese calligrapher just to see how much, how much respect do they have for India. Here you can read this is A. A is the beginning of all kinds of knowledge. As in Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavan Krishna says, Akara, uh, varna nam akarosmi. I am the beginning of all knowledge. So, A is the beginning of all knowledge. The knowledge in India is divine. It is meant for all. They, the Acharyas, the Gurus, the Rishis, they did not have any copyrights. They just gave whatever they had. And it was meant for everybody, not only for India. So, the, the knowledge is divine. So because knowledge is divine, so you can see like a deity, this a letter sits on a lotus flower and there is a halo like a deity that is surrounding a knowledge has to be pure. Below another, there is another lotus that signifies the purity of knowledge because there can be knowledge of all kinds. There can be knowledge which can destroy the world, but there can be knowledge that can give the transcendental, the ought values to the world, that can give peace and harmony to the world. They can show the path of friendship to the world, brotherhood to the world. And wherever the Indians went, wherever our knowledge went, where our texts went, wherever our acharyas went, they took the knowledge of kindness, of compassion, of love for all. So it has to be the knowledge, they said, has to be pure. But when you have purity of knowledge, but it has also to be powerful, there should be part in it. Otherwise, knowledge is of no use. Sometimes it is of use, but when there is a conflicting situation, when there is a difficult situation, then you need power also. In India, our rishis said, Shastre, Shastre Chakaushalam. One has to be efficient, one has to be proficient in Shastra and Shastra both. And this concept I can see in Japan also. They say, Ken Zen Ichi. And this Vajra below the lotus, placed on a lotus pericarp, indicates power. And I would give you just one example that the great rishis, Vishwamitra, Vasishta, they had huge knowledge, but they could not fight with the demons who were destroying the yajyas, who were disturbing them all the time. So when we talk of culture, people think that culture is just a way of life. Culture is just uh, the way we live. But the culture in India is very different. It is... It is based on the Sanskrit, huge Sanskrit literature. Sanskriti, Sanskritashrita. Sanskriti, Sanskritashrita. Our culture is based on the huge, the immense treasure of literature that has been bequeathed to us by the rishis, by the gurus, by the acharyas. And that literature, that idea, that philosophy that gave us a distinct culture and that distinct culture gave us a special kind of mindset. In India, we call it sanskara. So from Sanskrit to Sanskriti 
to sanskara so our culture ours are based on the sanskaras that we have derived that we have derived from the immense literature and philosophy of life and that is how we have developed very distinct kind of traditions and customs some of the traditions and customs people just think they are useless and in the modern times people don't have to don't have time to follow all this they they say we are so busy in our life we have no time to to uh, to preserve and uh, to follow the traditions and customs but i must tell you there is a lot of research required on our traditions they are so scientific our culture our customs are so scientific i just give you one example that uh, the um, what is it called the bihari bihari biharis uh, uh, perform that chhat puja how they do it they stand during the sunrise and the sunset in water the whole day they don't even drink a drop of water they detoxify their body they dehydrate their body and the body is ready to 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 receive the energy from the sun so like a like a plant receives energy the photosynthesis happens the in the best way when it is sunrise and sunset so the similar way they stand in water and offer prayers to sun for an hour or so there is a lot of science behind it religion and ideals we are the people of realization we don't say these are the uh, these are the uh, concept this is the philosophy that everybody has to accept no there is hinduism whatever we have in india is hinduism buddhism jainism ism means that you are free to think there is we are not the people of one book we are not the people of one god we are the people of in realization every concept we have to meditate we have to think we have to ponder over because every soul every human being has a divine spark inside him devas the hridayastham bhavaya devam every human being every heart has the divine spark in him so this is how all these ideals all these uh, that is why we have so many books so many texts written over the centuries by so many acharyas and gurus so our religion our concept of religion our concept of ideals our concept of philosophy is totally different from all other cultures from all other religions whether it's we i mean buddhism jainism and hinduism all and this is what we took this is what we gave to all those countries wherever the indian acharyas reached wherever the indians reached as traders wherever the indians reached as princes also so when we talk of the definition of asian culture we cannot fix it there is no fixed or absolute definition that can be given to the indian culture to the asian culture i'm just giving you a quotation from a great french indologist silvalabi he said india when he was writing writing about india he said mother of wisdom india gave mythology to her uh, to her neighbors 
it is the mother of philosophy she gave three quarters of asia a god a religion a doctrine of philosophy thailand and cambodia are the greatest recipients according to him although i must say that is not only the thailand countries of cambodia and thailand there are other countries also but i'm just quoting him so when we talk of culture then there are many levels of culture culture doesn't mean what you are wearing or what how you dress up how you what you eat or what you speak culture has many levels it has a physical level when we talk of our languages and scripts that india gave to all i'm talking in terms of in from the perspective of what india gave to the world so first of all we have to look at the languages the script the ways of recreation the customs and traditions i i take it as a physical culture but there are other levels of culture like intellectual culture in intellectual culture we have the huge number of thousands and thousands of texts that are translated into the languages of other countries for example when indians when the indian acharyas reached china they took and the and the in the chinese scholars and pilgrims when they come they came to india both ways indian texts were carried to china and around 3000 sanskrit texts were translated into chinese not only once many times because whenever there was a problem with any of the chinese emperors to solve those problems they used to invite indian acharyas they used to send missions to visit the holy places and those texts were translated into chinese and they made uh, compiled them into a uh, into a compendium that is called tripitaka but when these texts reached china tibet there are around 5000 texts that are translated into tibetan and they categorized into two the one compendium is called kanjur and the other is called tanjur so in kanjur and tanjur there are almost 5000 why i am saying why i am not giving you the exact numbers because there are many versions of kanjur and tanjur there are many versions of tripitaka in um, uh, compiled in china by many dynasties compiled in uh, korea and compiled in japan so i am not giving you the exact number and sometimes there are differences and when i am talking of tripitaka you may ask me a question that what is the difference between the pali tripitaka and the chinese tripitaka yes there are differences there are many texts which are there in the pali tripitaka but are not there in the chinese tripitaka and there are many texts which are there in chinese tripitaka but are not there in the pali tripitaka so there are variations and also in kanjur and kanjur and also in tripitaka there are differences in the text in the way they collected it the way they compiled it so india gave them hinduism buddhism or when we talk of uh, hinduism then vaishnavism shaivism there is a huge pantheon that india gave to these countries there is a huge literature and also the literature was so inspiring for them for example when mahabharata reached indonesia they created their own texts on the basis of stories of mahabharata so in indonesia there is not just one text mahabharata there are many texts that are based on mahabharata different different stories of mahabharata 
and they have so much of respect once i was there in a royal family and they invited me to read and correct some of the manuscripts so the first manuscript that that they showed me was bharat yuddha so mahabharat yuddha so they call it bharat yuddha because i had studied their script that is called old javanese there is a there is an island in indonesia java that was a great center of sanskrit learning and they have created a huge literature in javanese uh, language and also script so when they write when they wrote their own text then they wrote the basic shlokas are written in sanskrit and they have written commentaries in old javanese so as soon as i started reading that i i started it the first word Uh, for the first sentence i read and they were angry with me can you just imagine why these people the royal family was angry with me because as i started i said vyasa they said no bhagwan vyasa i bowed to them yes this is the country who says bhagwan vyasa and we indians who are so much especially if you have somebody like me with so much of devotion towards my literature towards my culture towards my acharyas even i am not saying bhagwan panini i am not saying bhagwan vyasa i am not saying bhagwan valmiki oh i was so embarrassed then the next thing came about valmiki again bhagwan valmiki and they asked me about do you study mahabharata it was long long time back around 40 years i am talking uh, telling you this story that happened with me around 40 years ago have you studied mahabharata Oh, again, a very embarrassing question for me because I had never studied Mahabharata. I said in India, people have a belief that uh, if you keep Mahabharata in your home, then there will be so much conflict and fight in the family. Oh, they were so unhappy. They said Mahabharata. If you don't have Mahabharata in your life, you cannot live life because Mahabharata teaches you. Mahabharata gives you so many kinds of lessons to live life as a prince, as a king, as a layman, as a scholar, as a so so many aspects of life are covered in Mahabharata. And if you don't study Mahabharata, you cannot understand life. You cannot live life. And when I went to Cambodia. i could see the largest the largest uh, panels of mahabharata and especially of churning of ocean churning of ocean we have been talking about to our kids about churning of ocean how there was a devasur sangram and how ocean was churned so how do they interpret this churning of ocean they say when you churn the society then you take out gems from the society you need people so if you study the panels in the temple of angkor wat that the themes are taken from ramayana and mahabharata they all give us different kinds of lessons to live life to live a peaceful life to live a flourishing life to live a powerful life because all all these ideals all this philosophy is very relative we say krodha is not good but when a when a soldier is in the field of war he has to be angry but a mother cannot be angry towards her children so this kind of lessons are there 
all over Southeast Asia. When you visit the temples like Tangkorwar, you visit the Brahmanin Temple. So what you see in Brahmanin Temple, this is the largest ever built Shaiva temple in the world. In even India has not built a Shaiva temple to the scale what Indonesia has done. So when I, I have been visiting all these temples a number of times, visiting Prambanan was like a dream coming true for me. There is a temple dedicated to Shiva, another to Brahma, another to Vishnu, another to Durga, another to Ganapati, and then there are the rides, and there are 225 smaller temples surrounding them. What you see there, what you don't see in many of our temples, but there what you see and how they have preserved it. The earliest pictorial engraved Ramayana is there on the walls of the Prambanan temple. So when we talk of religion, when we talk of philosophy, when we talk of spirituality, it's all intermingled. Even if you want to study the impact of Indian performing arts, you have to go to temples like Prambanan. One of our eminent uh, dancers, Dr. Padma Subramaniam, she had created a series of karanas for a temple in uh, Maharashtra. I, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you the name of the temple. But when she, after that, when she visited Brahmanan in Indonesia, she realized the same sequence of karanas which she prescribed, she suggested for a temple in India, the same series she could find in Indonesia. So when we talk of ethical values, a country like China, they were so impressed by the philosophy of Indian. The Buddhist philosophy that they received that a king, that an emperor can be compassionate to the masses. For them, it was only the power, only the political power. And what do you do when you have only the political power, when you have faith only in political power and showing off that power? What were they doing? They were building huge tombs the largest tomb ever built in China is in Xi'an that was built by the emperor Qing Shi Huangdi. And all over Asia, wherever you go, where you go to Japan, you go to Korea, you go to Southeast Asian countries, what you see is tombs there. Whatever kind of arts do you have, paintings, sculptures, what you have, whatever you discover from these tombs is all related to the tomb culture. So tomb culture means a life after death. But when Indians reached there, when Indian culture reached there, they shifted their energies from tomb cultures to temple cultures. Whenever uh, any capital was built, the first thing was done to build beautiful temples, monasteries, stupas, to sanctify the state, to establish the art values, to establish the dharma, because they wanted, because they aspired to rule as kings, as rulers who were working for the people. Because Ashoka is the first emperor in India for about whom we get proofs through his, uh, through his inscriptions that public welfare works were the most important, whether it was digging of wells, whether it was a stump, opening of hospitals, planting of trees and all these things. So 
public welfare was the most important in our culture. So that we gave to all these countries. When I talk to the archaeologists in India, the a question that I normally ask them, what is the earliest palace that has been discovered from India? What we have discovered in all of our archaeological sites, sites are normally, they are temples or monasteries or anything related to public. That means, does it mean that our kings were not building first for them, but they were building temples first. So there is a long history and this is what we gave them. There were special temples built in all these countries for the protection of the state, for example. There are temples for state built in Japan. There is the earliest standing intact temple in Japan is Horyuji. The meaning of Horyuji is Dharma Vardhana Mahavihara. Dharma Vardhana Mahavihara. So who made this and why did they build this? So I'm coming to it later on. So there is intellectual culture, there is aesthetical culture and all sorts of things. When we talk about the India's contribution to these countries, first of all is that it opened up new horizons of thought, new horizons of philosophy of life. What we gave them is writing systems. The, all the countries in Southeast Asia, they did not have any script to write. When our Acharyas reached there, they took, they, they devised, they drafted their own script on the basis of Indian scripts like Pallava, like Grantham, etc. And literature is a huge area that we can talk about how our literature reached there and how it served as a basis for creation of their literature. Our, our literature gave them the foundation. For example, the beginning of literature in Japan goes back to the three commentaries written by their prince, Shotoku Taishi, on the three Buddhist sutras, Saddharma Pundarika Sutra, Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, and... Uh, um, there is one more, uh, I'm just forgetting the name. So there are uh, three sutras on, whom, on which he wrote commentaries and they are the earliest literary works in Japan and from there starts the history of Japanese literature. Linguistics, wherever you go, the science of language, the R our grammarians were known all over these countries. From Mongolia to Indonesia, Panini was studied. Even now, Mongol scholars study Panini and the Mongol language. This, the grammar of the Mongolian language is based on Panini. When I was working on my amphithesis, my subject was Sanskrit grammatical text discovered from Indonesia. And at that time, because there were many, and at that time I checked the catalog of the Tibetan texts also that are translated into China, uh, Tibetan from Sanskrit. And I made a list of 49 Sanskrit grammatical texts and I took that list to the historian of Sanskrit gram history of Sanskrit grammar. Here you can see Kumaraji, the Indian Acharya of 4th, 5th century. He's, uh, and he was a Kashmiri Brahman. He became a monk and traveled abroad. He went towards, he traveled towards uh, uh, China to spread the Dharma. 
to to and on his way he was stopped in a small uh, kingdom that is called kucha on the now it is on the silk road but now it is a part of china that time it was not a part of china so he was stopped there and he was forcefully asked to uh, leave his monks robes because they were searching for an appropriate match for the princess and he could have been the best match so far so he was forced to marry the princess of kucha and they gave birth to kumara jiva kumara the word half of his name is from kumarayana and the half is from kumara jiva and he is the he is a, an acharya who is still known in japan they call him kumaraju and the japanese say that out of 75000 temples in japan 65000 temples are based on the philosophy of the text that were translated by kumaraju there is another acharya that i'm showing you this is atisha atisha sacrificed his life it was a time 10th century then when foreign invasions had started and the monasteries the universities but were being destroyed it was a huge question in front of him whether he should go or not but he had to leave because the because the uh, tibetan emperor was so keen to reestablish buddhism then he sacrificed his life went to such a high altitude which reduced the number of ages the number of years he could live and on the other side you can see his workplace the office you can say where he is sit and work these are some rare very rare pictures that i'm showing you from today this is another acharya his name is shubhakar singh and in the in the it is it is a self made portrait it is a rare portrait of any acharya made by himself and he has signed it you can see dev singh kar dev singh so if this is shubhakar singh who was an acharya in nalanda university and who had gone to china and he took the philosophy of mantrayana mantrayana all the sects in east asia that are based on the philosophy of mantrayana are very close to india in terms of the mantras in terms of the pantheon in terms of the traditions in terms of their uh, texts in terms um, in all the terms you can say hindu hindu gods and goddesses indian acharyas were 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 so much honored so much respected in china that you can even find their portraits painted on the caves on the walls of the caves in china many acharyas for example i would like to give the example of kumara jiva kumara jiva was so famous when a chinese emperor heard about him the the his his intellect about his uh, outstanding uh, scholarship then he sent uh, uh, an army of 70000 soldiers to capture him and when he was brought to china he was appointed as rajguru so there is a huge history of acharyas who were appointed as rajagurus and brought as god booty by chinese emperors so here i'm just showing you a part of a you know, of a uh, map uh, of uh, uh, of uh, silk road 
because uh, from there, from Silk Road, from Taxila, there are people and their people used to walk, go to Khotan and the other side was uh, Bactria, Samarkand, Kokan, Fargana. And Kashgar is very important. Kashgar was the center of uh, Vedic learning. Even in a modern Chinese map, I have seen it named as Kashi. It was a Kashi for China and people used to go for studying. This is Kucha, where Kumarajiva was born. This is Khotan. Khotan was a great center of Sanskrit because people used to go from India to Khotan and from China, they used to come to Khotan and huge number of Sanskrit texts, although when most of them are fragmentary, are discovered from Khotan. People used to gather there from all over China and India and other countries from Persia. Persians were great scholars of Sanskrit. Persia, you can see on this side, and they were traveling to China from this Silk Route. And the first, the, the translator of Sanskrit texts is a Persian Prince Anshikau, whose texts are preserved. So this route uh, use, uh, bifurcates in Kashgar and meets again at Zunwan. And uh, uh, from the uh, southern uh, side, it goes by Khotan and again they meet at Dunhuang. Dunhuang was the point where both met and many Indians were living there. They had settled there and they, had, they used to study there. there. Again, there is a long history about it. And beyond that was Great Wall. And beyond the, this side of the Great Wall, there was nothing China's. There was all Indian culture permeated there all over the place. How difficult was the journey? Just I'm showing you one picture that I took when I visited this place. There was all desert all around. Wherever there is a small water body, it can be a small river. There was some life and it was so difficult. The journey through Silk Route was so difficult for these monks and acharyas who were traveling both ways. They had to stay for days together to remain without food and even a drop of water was not available. Many of them died on their way. So their lives are sacrificed for spreading the culture of India. When I reached such places, I bowed to the Acharyas who had risked their, risked their lives, who had sacrificed their lives. I brought some stones from there as souvenirs that these are the stones who have seen our Acharyas. Even today, when we travel by cars, air-conditioned cars and stay in hotels, we think, we feel, we say that journey is so difficult. Just think about the journey of these Acharyas. They had to travel miles and miles, whether they have water or not, whether they have food or not. So, how they spread Indian culture. Just a glimpse I'm giving you. This is Gayatri Mantra. So divine for all of us in India that there was a, in 17th century, I'm just telling you that from first, first century AD, even from the third century BC, there's a continuous history in China to the 17th century. This is an example from the 17th century. Then 
the Qianlong, the Manchu emperor of China, he collected all the Sanskrit mantras from the Tripitaka, asked them to write in four different scripts, Manchurian, Chinese, Mongolian, and Tibetan, because around them, people used to read these four kinds of major scripts. So can you imagine how big was the collection Afterwards, it was published, the whole entire collection was published by an academy, International Academy of Indian Culture, in 22 thick volumes, Sanskrit mantras from the Imperial Palace of China. If you visit the Imperial Palace of China in Beijing, you will see how many beautiful Buddhist statues but they, are, they have preserved it so carefully with so much of dedication. And Chenlung, why he collected them, these mantras? Because his mother was turning 80 years. And when a, a person turns 80 years, means he has seen 1,000 full moon days, Sahasra Chandra Darshi. And he presented this collection of Sanskrit mantras on the 80th birthday of his mother. On the other side, I'm just showing you a bowl of a ritual bowl with Sanskrit mantras. You can try to read the swasti swasti madhyam dine. So, and uh, below I have given all the sides of this uh, you know, this bowl that how he is worshipping with a ball, this ritual ball, how he's worshipping with a ball that there should be swasti in the morning, swasti in the midday, swasti in the night. And the tradition continues. This is a photograph of Sadin Ding. She's a singer and she sings only Sanskrit mantras and she has launched a number of albums. How they used to copy the Sanskrit texts that were translated into Chinese. Blocks were made like this and ink was applied and then take the impression on paper. They used to make copies whenever there was a text completed in translation and 3,000 to 5,000 monks used to gather from all over China to participate in, uh, in any translation project because translation was not just a simple translation. They used to discuss for every boy how it should be translated. Many emperors and princes wrote four words to them. They used to, they used to cheer those sessions when, the, um, then, when a particular text was given uh, a final, uh, final form and it was accepted that yes, this is, uh, this is acceptable to China. So here I'm showing you fragments of an old Sanskrit drama, Shariputra Prakarana by Ashwagosha. We have discovered the oldest Sanskrit manuscript from East Asia. This is one of the examples. The other is, maybe I'll show you later. So there are other examples also, hundreds and hundreds, not only hundreds, but thousands of examples of Sanskrit manuscripts discovered from these sand buried sites because the monasteries are destroyed by after the invasions. This I'm showing you just an example that how Sanskrit 
and have you made an appointment with the emperor which text have you brought so they are talking like this so this is a text of conversation that is a proof that people used to learn sanskrit before traveling because that way they could communicate with them it is a sanskrit inscription this the name of the inscription is ushnish vijaya and this is the mantra ushnish vijaya the same mantra that is written on the great wall of china can you believe it the only madman man made or built item on the world is great wall of china that you seen from the moon and this bears a sanskrit inscription and it is of ushnish vijaya if you try you can just try to read na mo ba 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 te so like this because this is 8th 9th century script of india that was taken and this ushnish vijaya is, is given a uh, given an anthropomorphic form personified ushnish vijaya this is the manuscript that i wanted to show you the first sanskrit manuscript that is preserved the ancient most most ancient manuscript that is preserved in japan that is also of ushnish vidya dharani this is written in gupta script and can you believe that when prince shotokutaishi when he drafted the first constitution for japan 17 article constitution based on the philosophy of bahujana hitaya bahujana hitaya sukhaya and panchashila and for promulgation before promulgation of the constitution it was sanctified can you believe that the constitution is sanctified with a sanskrit mantra so that it can work so that the country can work for the welfare of the people so these are the democratic concept the philosophy of india that has been given to all these countries and sorry i cannot give you more examples this manuscript is still preserved in japan and for many years scholars like me used to think that this is the earliest sanskrit manuscript of the world but after excavations on the silk road the second century manuscripts of the manuscripts are discovered so this is not now the oldest manuscript when we talk of utsavas when we talk of festivals many countries still celebrate many festivals that are similar to india here you can see korean people dancing in front of the pagoda and on the top you can see a moon that is the utsava festival that is the festival of sharad purnima there are a number of festivals that i have seen even in thailand in cambodia in vietnam many countries that are very close to india but sometimes the they are they are changed sometimes their way of celebration is changed sometimes they have mixed up more than one festival together for example the festival of new year and holi is mixed up in thailand the way they celebrated you can only see and realize the how they have mixed up them pitri tarpana we the people who give tarpana to our forefathers so there is a there is a tradition of performing shraddh in many countries here i am showing you uh, my own picture 
roles. So it's a black and white. Here you can see a river is flowing, and on top of it, they have made arrangements in a way that anybody can go and tie a strip with Sanskrit mantra written on one side, and on the other side, they write the name of the forefathers for him, for whom they want to do tarpana. And they go to tombs also. After cremation, they, they preserve the remains and build small stupas uh, on the remains. So when they go there to these places where there are a large number of stupas dedicated to the ancestors, so they offer water. Even today, they go there. So this is the mantra that is written there, A, B, Ra, Hom, Kam. So these five, they are written here also, but I'm showing you from here. This is another place. So this, uh, this represents the five fundamental elements from which our body is made. Prithvi, Up, Tej, Bayu, and Akash. Kam represents Akash. So these are different forms, different shapes, and seed syllables representing them. So I just showed you Avira Homkam written, and even now writing for writing Sanskrit mantras in Japan, they still practice writing these mantras because this is a script for writing mantras. If a statue is broken, we cannot worship. Khandit Murti ki muja puja nahi karte. So the similarly, a Khandit Mantra, if it is not written properly, then you cannot use it for prayers. So even today, the monks in monasteries and temples, they study how to write. And I'm showing you how they study, how they practice to write it. With the strokes, giving numbers, that how your brush, because they write with brush. So how your brush has to move and how one after the other stroke has to be done. This is Shiva, written by a Japanese calligrapher. How has he written? When you write Shiva, it is, a, it is a huge six feet long scroll on which this Shiva is written. I have met this calligrapher. The way they write, they have to stand up for writing such a huge Shiva. They have hold a huge brush, do pranayam before that, so that prana, the breath, has to be controlled. It cannot be broken when you write a mantra. And your brush cannot be dipped the second time. So with the full brush, he has to write verb, but before that, he has to write the e matra of Shiva. But because Ganga flows from the jatas of Shiva, so he has he has given a dry brush effect with a full brush. Can you imagine how he has done it? It's a matter not only of meditation, but a long time practice, meditation, so much. So much is required for it. And the other is Vayu. See how he has written Vayu. It, it gives you a feel that something is fluttering. With them reach the Hindu pantheon. This is Indra, this is Agni. And their seed syllables, E for Indra, A for Agni. They are also divine for their place on lotus seeds and having halos. And these are the 
these are the astral deities held to these countries with the Hindu pantheon and their similarity. There's still many countries, they still worship the Hindu deities. Here I'm showing you Devi Saraswati. There are three major goddesses whom a state needs, for example. The three are Saraswati, Lakshmi, and Durga. Because for running a state, you need intellectual power. You need political and administrative power. You need financial power. And all these powers have to be pure, have to be divine. So they worship these deities in many different forms. I cannot go into the details. And I just say that there are many forms of these Hindu deities which I have never seen in India, but they are made, they are preserved in these countries. And on the other side, I'm showing you Om Saraswati Ring 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 Swaha. This is a mantra for Saraswati written by Tibet. Wherever there is Tibet, wherever there is Tibetan culture, always you will see this mantra Om Mani Padme Hum. Wherever there are Tibetans, there are Mongols, you will see these people just chanting this mantra. This mantra vibrates everywhere. It sanctifies the mind. It sanctifies everywhere, wherever they are. So this is how. And even if you go to a Tibetan area, wherever there are Tibetan people, you will see fluttering banners tied on ropes and tied in air floating so that the wind blowing, the air, the breeze blowing touches the mantras and takes the energy of the mantras wherever it reaches. The beautiful monasteries can ask to visit to understand what kind of cultural contribution is there. Wherever there is beauty in Asia, wherever there is divine in Asia, wherever there is grandeur in Asia, wherever there are transcendental values in Asia, it is a gift of our Acharyas. They were the best children of Mother India, Bharat Mata. Even today, in Zen monasteries, monks sit and meditate. So with these, uh, just a few things which I could show you in this short period, in this short time. Uh, it was just a glimpse into the uh, contribution of Indian culture. All of us of Asia, from Indonesia to Mongolia. On the other side, you can see from Japan to even to Europe. Yes, I would like, just like to talk a little bit about Europe because our contribution to Europe is major, basically linguistic. And I want to give you some examples that how Sanskrit has enriched even the English language and all the European language. I'm giving you some, just a few examples. For example, advocate, ad walk it. It has three parts. So, in between walk comes from the Sanskrit root vach. Vach means to speak. Ad is from adhi, vach and it is from the Sanskrit suffix krita. So, adhi vakta is advocate. If you take out vach from advocate, what will be doing? In English, and there are a few more examples that I have given here. In English, even the words like father and mother are given by Sanskrit. 
they have become fossilized words in china in english if you ask any of the english linguists that what is what is the etymology of brother what is the etymology of mother mother or father or daughter or knight they cannot tell you because brother is from bhatri mother is from matri father is from pitri knight is from nak ask any of the english linguists why there is gh in knight when i was teaching spellings to my granddaughter of knight she said n i t knight so i had to tell her no it has to be n i g h t then she was she was so angry why you put in g h in between so they cannot answer it because nakt is the sanskrit word ka become g g h and it has placed it similarly daughter it comes from duhitri so i'm just giving you some words and anyway jan from uh, for example the words generation generator gen, uh, there are so many words made from the word jan gen g e n this comes from the sanskrit root jan that means to be born hydro sulfuric phosphorus phosphorus is from bhaswar so similarly there are thousands and thousands of words in the english language and also in other other european languages one has to work on it and study it properly how they have percolated into the european languages for example the word giri has become kili in some languages so it, it, because of pronunciation it has changed we have published a book from bharti vidya bhavan sanskrit and europe there we have given a number of articles to study to read that how sanskrit has contributed to the european languages then how sanskrit has contributed to the uh, there is another book that is sanskrit on the silk road that talks about east asia and sanskrit on the maritime route that talks about that gives uh, the, there are the research papers on sanskrit in southeast asia so that way it's a series of books anybody can just go and uh, just read them so it's very important to study how india has contributed immensely i am not saying even a single word exaggerating any point it is all based on facts well researched well documented not only from india but also from many countries all over the world from where i have done documentation researched and studies thank you very much i would like to start with my questions in the beginning you showed different forms different om in different scripts how is it pronounced in these different countries is, is it pronounced they, as om in china japan everywhere everywhere it's om very very interesting second and in question. indonesia it's very important that they have a very long kind of om and ardhachandra nad and bindu so it goes up it's beautifully written ma'am you showed some indian paintings in chinese caves uh, did they survive the cultural revolution in china because the That tibetan caves did come to us to us many of them so much is destroyed not only cultural revolution by chinese but also by invasions and also there is a there is a book written on silk road by germans and they they have written 
that when they reached there, the local people, the villagers told them that they are very late to come. Truckloads of manuscripts are, have, been, have been destroyed and they are thrown into river. And the villagers were told by the people uh, that if you don't destroy these paintings, then these will, these will become as ghosts and they will destroy you and your uh, crops. So every child was involved into, uh, into uh, destroying these paintings. And I have proofs taken pictures by myself where only eyes are uh, uh, just... Uh, with some knife, you can feel that with the knife, they have just uh, scrapped them. Not has been destroyed. In, in Tibet, they have almost entirely destroyed all the Tibetan art. Not and the in, they could not do it entirely because it is too huge. And in China also, they could not destroy it totally. Although in Mongolia, almost destroyed. In India also, so much is destroyed, not a single Buddhist monastery stands. But still, something is preserved in these places and these scholars like us could get them. There are two questions which are almost related. Uh, one is why the world does not recognize, this is by Lataji. Why does the world not recognize all the greatness of India? Why they don't acknowledge their roots? And the other question is that the different scripts you showed in Japan, Cambodia and all, do they accept that these all these things that they have, all these elements have Indian origin? Number one, the first question was acknowledgement of the glory of India. Only Indians don't accept because they don't know. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have inspiration. They don't have education. They don't have exposure. So the first thing is that we Indians have to acknowledge first of all. There are a huge number of scholars whom I know all over the world. They all acknowledge. But we have to work on it. No? And the second question was on the scripts. Yes, of course, there is a complete history about it. And they all acknowledge. Thank you, Dr. Shishivalaji. Uh, I mean, it's been a great lecture. Uh, but I just want to ask, how can we bring this knowledge and the history that we have for people like me who have not actually learned these kind of histories in their school textbooks. I know that there are some universities that are offering courses on Indology, but they are, they are pretty much focused on yoga and Ayurveda. Yeah. Yeah. So can, can you suggest what options people like me have? Yeah, there are, uh, there are many kinds and many levels of options. One is I am recommended to, for the schools and I am having meetings for that, that this kind of knowledge should be inserted uh, into the textbooks of our children uh, at the school level. When we teach them, for example, I gave one talk about uh, the new education policy, how we can insert uh, this, uh, uh, this aspect of our Indian culture, the glory of Indian culture. For example, I said that when we teach them uh, alphabets, because Akshar Gyana Sabse Pehle Dete so when we teach them alphabet, uh, 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 the Varnmala, Hindi Varnmala, then first thing we can just show them pictures of different scripts from uh, Indonesia, from Thailand, from Vietnam, from Cambodia, from Myanmar, Sri Lanka, all these countries that see the difference, see the similarity, how 
they are derived they are all the daughters of one script that is brahmi so show them one picture of brahmi show them another of devnagari show them another of uh, uh, for example pallava script grantham script show them uh, the sharda script and then show them how sharda script has an impact on this uh, tibetan script how the southeast asian scripts are developed from pallava script like this so just show them you don't have to teach them you don't have to tell them that you have to they don't have to study just to give them this much of money then when they learn 1 2 3 the numbers so just i i prepared uh, for my grandchildren when uh, i asked my grandson that yes you have to study sanskrit there was not a single student in our in his class who were accepting sanskrit i said no you have to study sanskrit because this is the most important most valuable in the richest language he said how how can you say dadi i said yes just listen i showed him the numbers from sanskrit then english then french then i made a table sanskrit english french german and russian i said see in english there is two t w o but two you can write with t u also but because it is from sanskrit dwau so it is t w o three is from three so like this and in all the european language india has contributed number system then i showed him the uh, roman system that for one you write one ek apne laga diya do hai to do teen hai to teen then you it's so difficult to write numbers in roman system india is the country who gave num numerals symbols for all numbers decimal system and zero to the world so when a child is in third class or second class even then he can understand oh this is so amazing for a child then step by step yes. step by step when you when you talk about gravitation then you can tell oh our rishis in the rigveda gave the first concept the first time the concept of gravitation is given in rigveda just give one line so like this you keep on adding and adding and adding a few lines here and there in all the books not just sanskrit not just history not just science not just social science everywhere so this is how we can teach in schools then you come to the college level there can be special courses and in different departments then you can have special classes like this that india's cultural contribution to the world should be a course and people should learn it madam i just have this curious question you were talking about new education policy and then you said this is how we can introduce you know kids and students in a school about all these things i'm just wondering if uh the whole system or the teachers themselves are aware of these things to impart this knowledge to the to the kids or the not, students they are not aware of that so they have to study and we have to give them material how far are we in terms of uh, getting into the curriculums uh, with this kind of uh, rich literature that you, which is which is missing from the curriculum i'm just giving some talks as a member of the mission high level committee constituted by the ministry of education for indian knowledge systems and uh, i had a meeting with the uh, chairman of the newly uh, established board bhartiya shikshan board and i'm just giving them suggestions meeting them that this is how they should be done 
let us see how much and i'm just giving them my stuff my books whatever i know whatever knowledge and other books also that we have i can suggest them and how to how i just studied this um, rashtriya shiksha niti how uh, we can insert into this where what we can do so let's see how much is possible and the the point is that the perspective has to change and uh, there should be a weightage balance of weightage given to time if we give how many pages are we giving to the earliest period the vedic age the puranic age the gupta period how much pages or words are we giving to the great empires like vijayanagar and other so many great empires the warrior classes what how we are telling our children what we are doing is that our perspective is different talking about history especially because all of our history books most of you can say our history books are based on the historical records the chronicles that are written either by greeks or by britishers or by arabs or by invaders so called mughals i don't i don't accept the word mughal it needs a lot of research but mughal is a misnomer they were not mongols actually there was uh, there can be in the mingling of mongol blood but the but i'm not going into the details of that right now but the perspective has to change we have to talk first about our uh, empires and then which empire which king fought with whom and what was the situation how he fought where and what happened but he victorious even if he was defeated we should say he was defeated we should not say akbar was victorious or babar was victorious so our perspective has to change we are not talking about the warrior classes of india the rajputs all the rajputs the six the the the, the in jammu the in uh, in maharashtra the marathas everywhere Like Alexander is called great. His 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 uh, his soldiers said no. We cannot move on any further. No, because they had never seen such soldiers. They had never seen such kind of weapons. That is why he took a number of people to manufacture weapons. Because our iron ore in the Gandhar region, Pushkalavati, was of a very high quality. and our technology was very high they did not know about it that is why they did not move on after that they had they had decided to move back so who was uh, who was uh, great we are not talking about our great king who fought with alexander we say alexander the great so the perspective has to change and the real story based on facts i am not saying without facts i have written a research paper on this pushkalavati what kind of uh, uh, weapons were they making and i need further research by people to be done that india's contribution to the steel industry of europe and very yes. informative and enlightening talk and you talked about the education system and one of the a uh, person viewing it also expressed that why don't we teach the children the problem which i find in school teaching is we 
the teachers just take the textbook and make them read it or explain only those two lines that are written in the textbook. Mine is that when you are teaching, why do we start from the text itself? Because every chapter in the textbook has a little story which you can take up from our culture, from our social, economic, political, every, any condition. You can take it and make things explain. Like, uh, I'll give an example, like during the Second World War, when in weddings we always have uh, these songs before the actual wedding takes place. In the evening, women would get together in the house where the wedding was taking place. And there was this folk song, which during the Second World War was very much prevalent in the areas of Punjab and Haryana, that Aisi kya jaldi machai ration mein shadi karai. So it's telling you what are the economic conditions of that time, how yeah. much a common man is suffering. Yeah. When you weave these things into history or into economics, you are able to understand the structure better. I mean, I have been teaching for a very long time. I've retired from teaching. And I never started the chapter of what was written in the book. I always told them a story from our Vedas, from our Upanishads or Ramayana or any other thing. And then I would ask them question, how are they going to relate it to the present situation? Whether it was on communism or socialism, I had, there are so many stories. So the, it is the teaching pattern needs changing and we have to be proud of ourselves. That is yeah. very essential. Yeah, this is, is what, yeah, this is what I said in my first meeting that, yes, according to the education, new education policy, you are giving good education, you are making them good professionals, everything is good. But we have to have a Gauravan with Bharat. I want to add that Gauravan with Bharat. What you said. So when we read this, this history, when we study this, when we know about it, so I'm going to many faculty development programs uh, so that teachers know about. So to many universities. So at least teachers have some idea. Maybe we can rewrite the textbooks and add something to the textbooks. You said you, from R. Karnik, you said you have been talking at faculty development programs. Did you ever come across the Marxist teachers confronting you? How were those experiences? I don't know if there were any Marxist teachers. I never confronted, never, never people, because all my work is fact-based, well-researched, documented. So nobody can uh, confront me. <laughs> and I never had this kind of a chance because whatever I'm saying, it's a fact. They can't deny whether he's a Marxist or communist or whatever, BJPite or Congressite, whatever. Everybody is an Indian. Indian first. So parties come later. We cannot divide our uh, heritage into parties. It's and their heritage also. It's just a chance that you become a Marxist. It doesn't matter that you, that you don't own that heritage. You cannot disown that. It's a heritage of your forefathers also. They were not Marxists. 